you're there. I think we all know what it's like to be used by someone, someone who just wants us for our advice or our money or our, the strength of our back or the opportunities we can give or some kind of connection we have or something like that. All of us know what it's like to be used, and none of us like it. It's not what friendship is. It's not what real understanding between people should be. It's as if someone says, I don't want to know you, but I want to use you. That's what Israel said to God. And that's what Hosea is chronicling for us. Just as, if it, just as it is hard to recognize that there are people who just want to use us, the Lord recognizes this and speaks through Hosea and says, He says, you can't use me. I want to know you. I want to know you. You see, our God is a God that we can't decide to use, but he's a God we must know. And Hosea is going to show us this morning in all of chapter 2 that knowing him is worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it because he's worth getting to know. And we're going to see in serious detail why it's worthwhile to know this God from Hosea chapter 2. And we're going to see why it's better to know God than use him. Now I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 of Hosea chapter 2, and I'm going to go all the way through. So if you have your Bible, follow along with me as I read, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. God's word says, Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born, make her like a wilderness, and make her like a parched land, and kill her with thirst. Upon her children I will also have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom, for their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers but not overtake them, and she shall seek them and shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it is better for me than, than now. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. 
And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. No longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow for her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Let's pray. Lord, opening your word is a holy thing. Preaching from your word is a humbling thing. But for both, we need your help this morning. I pray that you would overcome my many weaknesses and frailties. I pray that you would help me to preach faithfully. And and Lord, I pray that you would meet us today as a church. Lord, what we need is to hear from you. We need your word. We need your word to ring in our ears, and we need your word to melt our hearts. We need your word to cut and to heal. And we pray for that ministry this morning through Hosea chapter 2. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This morning we see why it's worthwhile to know God and not use Him. And we see it in the midst of a cautionary tale. We see a cautionary tale in the first half of Hosea chapter 2. And this cautionary tale is a tale of the unfaithfulness or the whoredom, which God uses to describe His people, the whoredom of Israel. He expresses His grounds for divorce with Israel because God has said that she has run after other lovers. Now, to underscore the level of Israel's apostasy, the Lord uses matrimonial language. God had pledged himself to Israel like a husband would pledge himself to his wife. Israel had pledged herself to God like a wife should pledge herself to her husband. God had been faithful. Israel had not. Now, all of us in this room, all of us, understand, whether we're married or not, we understand the commitment that's supposed to be associated with marriage. It's supposed to define 
the union of one man and one woman. All of us can understand, whether we're married or not, the devastation that accompanies adultery. Humanly speaking, there is no greater rejection. And sadly, I know some of you who have been rejected in that way. And you, at a deeper level, because of your experience, understand that level of rejection. But at some level, all of us get it. We've seen the devastation that adultery causes on spouses and children and grandchildren. And what God does is leverages that understanding and underscores it by connecting himself as a husband to Israel. Now, the major difference is that Israel did not commit adultery once or twice. She wasn't unfaithful occasionally. According to the Lord, what do we see? We see in verse 2, look here, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, speaking of Israel here, and, she, and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Now, this is salacious language, and it's meant to make you squirm. This is not hyperbole. Israel rejected God and ran after false gods, and that is spiritual whoredom. Now, to be clear, when we sometimes when Christians use the word spiritual, it's another way of saying not real, or it's not a thing, or it's just pretend. But that's not true here. That's not true here. This kind of this kind of whoredom is treachery that is more insidious and cuts deeper than any marital infidelity. Because what we have here is a God who in love and in grace reached out to a people who were not looking for him and made them his own. And they said, no thanks. And so, what did they do? Verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. For she who conceived them acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. Why? Why will she go after her lovers? Because they give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. You see what she's saying? What Israel's saying is this. In, a sense, in essence, God's fine. I'm happy to worship him and, and do the right thing, but I also need to make sure that I cover my bases and I need to make sure that I have enough food for my kids. I need to make sure I have enough water. I need to make sure I have enough grain in the storehouse. I need to make sure I have wool and flax so that I can go around clothed. And I need to have my oil and my drink. And so what Israel did was they didn't outright reject God. They didn't say, the God of my fathers is the God of mine no more. They didn't say that. They would go to worship. They'd go to the temple. They would offer the appropriate sacrifices. They would pray their appropriate prayers. They celebrated Yom Kippur and the Feast of Tabernacles and all the high holy days. They did all of those things, but also they offered sacrifices to the Baals. Now, in English, the word Baal just means master. So, what the Baals were, were like a series of, in, in the Canaanites' minds, kind of a, a series of local, regional, agricultural gods or masters. So if what you needed to do is you needed to find out, at least in the thinking of the Canaanites that bled over to Israel, what you needed to do was find out who was the god of the storms and make sure you offered the appropriate sacrifice, some animal sacrifice, to that god so the god could come, that god could bring rain and drop enough rain, rain over your crops, and, 
and make sure, though, that there's enough sunshine and make sure that it doesn't rain so hard as to wash your crops away. So the people, they would worship God, but then kill a lamb and say to whatever Baal they, they wanted to and say, okay, please bring me rain or sun. Please avoid the drought. And that's what they did. And see, their assumption was is that God doesn't know anything about agriculture. He's not going to either. He's not going to care. He doesn't know what to do. So let's go to these Baals. And God let them think that the Baals were the one providing. Look at verse 8. Here's the irony. And she, Israel, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. God was content in some ways. He was patient, really, in every way, to say, even though I know you think that you're getting this from these false gods, it's coming from me. And you think wrongly. See, the issue was, it wasn't that these people stopped worshiping God, it's that they stopped worshiping God exclusively. And, and, they just wanted things from him. See, look at verse 11. And I will put an end to all her mirth, that's happiness, joy, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. Those are all those things that are represented here in verse 11. Those are all commands from the Old Testament for the people to do. And you know what? They did them because that was what it was to be a faithful Jew worshiping. But at the same time, they offered sacrifices. The people wanted God, but what they wanted more was grain, wine, oil, flax, silver, gold, and wool. That's what they wanted. And so they were content to use God and kind of run around on him. And what's that, what is that called, according to Hosea? See, we would put nice words on it, like compromise. Or maybe, if you went to college, you say equivocation. But Hosea, speaking for God, says it's whoredom. It's whoredom. It's prostituting yourself. I remember the first time I went to Haiti. It was a culture shock in all kinds of different ways. And there were two things that surprised me. One was that there was all kinds of voodoo everywhere. And two, there were tons of churches. And so I was talking to the American missionary who was down there, and I was like, so tell me how voodoo and the witch doctors interact with the church. I mean, what's that like? And he says, it's a massive temptation for people, for Christians, not to go see the witch doctor. They go on Sunday, and they sing, listen to preaching, they read their Bible, but if their kids get sick, or they're hungry, or they need something, oftentimes they'll go to the witch doctor and make an offering so that they might be able to have what they need. And I was trying to get my head around it. Here we are in the 21st century and people are visiting witch doctors. And then the American missionary said, we do the same thing. We go to church on Sundays. We sing. We listen to the Bible preached. We read the Bible. 
But what we really want is our stuff. What we really want is what we want. We're willing to work too many hours. We're willing to neglect our family. We're willing to do whatever we want to get what we want. And he said, it's not as if we want God most of all. And it's true. Oftentimes, if we're honest, if we look in the mirror, what we want is stability or happiness, security or a good reputation. And we're not different than Israel who said, I will run after my lovers. But we don't run after them for oil and wine. We run after those who give us money so that we might have vacations and have good education for our children and give us food and shelter. We're all the same. We're tempted to use God instead of get to know God or know God. All of us, in some way, shape, or form, has prostituted ourselves before God. So is there any hope for us was there any hope for Hosea's original audience? Now, his original audience didn't listen. They get destroyed. That's the spoiler at the end. They get destroyed. God spoke to them, and they did not listen, and they got destroyed. We need to listen. We need to listen and recognize and know and really believe that it's much better to know God than to use him. And the strength of the, our resolve is not what makes the difference at the end of the day. It's important to obey, but I want to show you where this cautionary tale is interrupted and everything changes. This is one of the most surprising turns in the Old Testament. Look at verse 13. And I will punish her for her feast days of the Baals when she she burned offerings to them and adorned herself, adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. The next word of verse 14 says, therefore. Now, typically the way therefore works is because you did this, therefore this is what's going to follow, right? You would expect God to say, because you forgot me, Therefore, you need to recognize your land will be a desolation. Therefore, you need to recognize you will never receive anything good from my hand. Therefore, you will need to recognize that those bales, you're going to see that those bales have nothing to offer you, so go to them and see what they can provide. Therefore, this is what we would expect, but therefore, that is not what we read. God says, you forgot me, and what does he say in verse 14? Therefore, behold, I will allure her. That's not the way, therefore, is supposed to work. It seems illogical because it is. If you come home and say, I haven't eaten a thing all day, therefore I'm hungry, that makes sense. If you come home and say, I've been on my feet all day, therefore I need to put my feet up on the couch, that makes sense. If you say, I'm late, I had a flat tire, therefore I was 15 minutes late, or 20, or 30, or, or an hour late, that makes sense. But this doesn't. You see, here we see the glimmer of why it's worthwhile not to use God, but to know God. We see a God who shows us something about himself that we would not expect and that we would not do if we, would put into, if we were put in his position. 
God says, you have forgotten me and run after other lovers and become, become a whore. Therefore, I will follow, I will find you and allure you and call you back and make me mine. Make you mine. That is not what we would expect to see. This doesn't make sense. And here we have, though the word is not used, a sighting of grace. This here is grace in the Old Testament. We're not going to read the word grace in Hosea chapter 2, but that's what this is. It's unnatural and does not make sense to hear, you forgot me, therefore I will allure you. Or, you've run after other lovers, therefore I love you. What? That's not the way our world works. That is not the way our world works. And he even goes on to say in verse 18, And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. All of creation. I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. What he's doing, war's not over yet. So what he's doing is he's pointing through the mouth of Hosea to the new heavens and the new earth when one day all of creation will be made right and be in harmony. And then he picks up the language of marriage again. Now, think about it. Remember, he said from Hosea chapter 2, verse 1, all the way down to verse 13, he gave reasons why he was legally and lawfully divorcing Israel. He was legally and lawfully divorcing his wife because she had, she had run away. She had run after other lovers. She had, as the text said, played the whore. But yet we read, look at verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. Again, who's taking the primary action? Who's the one that's moving to the whores? It's not whores who come to their senses and say, you know what, I'm a spiritual whore. I've been using God my whole life, and I'm going to go to him, and maybe he'll do nice things for me. That's not what he says. Here we see God saying, I will come to you. I will make you mine. I will betroth myself to you forever. Not for a day or a week or a month or a year or a century or millennium, but forever, world without end. Have the people changed? No. Are we any different? No. Does God say, listen, I've made a really big deal out of, the, out of sin in the Old Testament, so the New Testament's coming. Hey, let's turn over a new leaf and be nice. No. His standard doesn't change. How could God, because the reality is, he's right. You read Hosea chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we all see our reflection there. That's the nature of who mankind is. How in the world can God say, on the one hand, I have divorced you. On the other hand, I will betroth myself to you forever. How can he say that? It's because of the bridegroom. In all four of the Gospels, Jesus, the term bridegroom is used about Jesus. John records in John chapter 3, John the Baptist describing the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He says, you yourselves bear, wit bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who, he, one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom 
who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Do you see the reason God can say to his sinful, whoring, prostituting people that I will betroth myself to you forever is not because he decided to change his standard. No, look at what he says in the rest of verse 19. I will betroth to you, there's that word again, to me in righteousness and justice. In other words, he doesn't say, my standards need to change, therefore I'm going to just pardon you for no reason. No, the betrothal is seen to be right and just. And no one can come and say, this is wrong. No one in all the universe can say, it is wrong for you to betroth yourself to this prostitute. Because why? He betrothed himself to his people in righteousness and in justice, and also in steadfast love and mercy. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. How? How is that possible? Because of the bridegroom. He came. He came to pursue his people by becoming one of his people. He came to the whoring, idol-worshiping, compromising, cowardly, selfish people and wasn't whoring, idol-worshiping, never compromised, always courageous, never selfish, and took their place. Just as it's shocking to read, just as it's shocking, this is where... This is where, as we see what God has done for us in Christ, right here, what we need to say is this. It is worthwhile for me to get to know this God. Not to use Him for my own ends and means. Because when we use Him, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I want these things from you, and these are the things that, I, that, that define whether or not we have a good relationship. And God says, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to change the terms of the relationship. Yes, I will betroth myself to you forever, but it's on my terms. And what are his terms? His terms are just and righteous. His terms are are full of steadfast love and mercy and complete faithfulness. And how can that be? Because his people, the people of the book here are not. They're not lovable. They're not worth spending mercy on. Because of the bridegroom. Think about Jesus here for a second. And think about the use of therefore we saw in verse 14. God said, you forgot me, therefore I will allure you. Think about that for a second. Think about Jesus from God's perspective. God was speaking over Jesus. We've heard these things before in the Gospels. We would hear God saying, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. God could say, I will glorify you in the sight of all people, and they will be taken with your majesty. God could say, your service has been pleasing to me. You have always worshipped me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. God could say, you have walked with me day and night. Never once have you turned your back on me. Always you have listened to my voice, and you have obeyed without reserve, completely flawless. This is who you are. Therefore, I will kill you and smite you, 
and spend my wrath upon you. That doesn't make sense. And it's at that point we say, oh, I get why I want to know this God and not use him. How could it be? How could it be that God saw us for who we are and yet still sent his son? You see, it's not like God is limited. Maybe you've never sold your body. Maybe you've never been a prostitute. Maybe you have. But all of us in our minds and in our hearts have done that. We're all compromised. And it's not as if God doesn't know that. He knows the kind of people we are or have been. And he says, I will betroth myself to you forever. That's unexpected. That's unexpected. And when we see this, we see in Jesus, we see both justice and steadfast love coupled together. We see both righteousness and mercy coupled together. Why? Because sins were not winked away. The wrath of God was poured out upon sins, but those sins were put on Jesus. And it's there we say, oh man, I want to know this Jesus. I want to know him. Do you see what he's done for us? <laughs> I mean, this is, this is where when you come to spots like this in the Bible, when you read your Bible, you go, and this is holy ground here. God has betrothed himself to us, Christian, friend, forever. Is it because you're lovable or obedient or you've done all the right things? No. No. It's because he decided to pursue you and allure you to him. And he's promised, he's promised this in verse 20, and you shall know the Lord. That's a sweet promise. That's the best. That's the best. You know, if we're honest, if we're honest, and I put myself in this category, what we want is to know that our future... We have questions we want answered, right? We have some uncertainties we want cleared up. We, want, we have some cute confusion we want um, cleared up. We have some suffering we don't want to experience. We have some other things that we just want to get those out of the way so that we can follow the Lord. But you know, there are times where we need to recognize, we need to recognize that it's much better to know Him than to know the answers to all of our questions. And it's always better to know him. Do you know him? I'm not talking about know about him. Do you know him? To where you can say, man, I want to know him more. Or are you using him? I do that. I do, I, it's so easy to do that. Some of us need to lay our expectations about what God should do next with our lives on the ground. 
and recognize he's not there for our personal use. He's there for us to know him. He's there for us to know him. It may be that through heartbreak, you become, you really get to know who God is. It may be that through your suffering, it can be said by you, I know the Lord. It may be through your loneliness that the Lord said that you are taught who the Lord is. It may be through some kind of failure where you can say, I know the Lord. It may be through some kind of trial or suffering or hardship or slander. It may be through some kind of disappointment with your marriage or your children that you say, I have lived through this, but I know the Lord because I have found that the Lord might not do everything that I expect. The Lord might not do everything that I want, but He is my God and He has betrothed Himself to me and I have known Him through this. Even if we don't get what we want. Friends, there's no one like our God. And He's not hiding. If you want to hear what He has to say, read the Bible out loud. Can you hear his voice? Friends, what an opportunity we have to set aside our expectations, our demands, and just to see, here's one who did not treat me as my sins deserve and loves me, though I sin. And let our minds shake with, what? If the gospel and grace ever makes sense to you, you don't understand it. Because it doesn't. See, it's at that point we go, praise God. That's why I want to get to know God. I want to get to know somebody who can do stuff that doesn't make a lick of sense, but is like, whoa, that's amazing. And that's who God is. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that for myself. Pray that for all of us. Lord, I want to know you. I want all of us to know you, Lord. And there are many times that we have laid conditions and really come to you just to ask for stuff or maybe observed certain things, certain traditions or went to church or whatever just to get things from you. But Lord, I pray that we would be a church and a people that want to know you, want to lay all those things aside. I pray that we would, where we are convicted of spiritual whoredom, where we are convicted of going all kinds of other places and laying sacrifices in front of other idols to say, hey, this is what I really want. I'm going to play. I'm going to do this so I can get what I want. But I'll still give, tip my hat to the Lord and, and we'll be okay there. Lord, I pray that we would lay those things aside. I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, Lord. We know that the, the, the nation of Israel, they didn't listen. They didn't hear and they didn't change. And Lord Jesus, I pray that we would hear and listen. I pray that you would help us each individually and corporately as a church to be a people who hear your voice and say, I want to know you. And may it be said of us, they want to know God. We do. But we pray that you would show us yourself through your Son, through your Word. We pray that you would pray that you would help us to see 
the wor- how worthwhile it is to know you. Jesus, without you, none of this is possible, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.